So we are continuing our series in the book of Psalms. Over the last six or seven weeks, we have been studying this beautiful collection of Israel's ancient poems and prayers, and we have been uh, looking at them specifically through this framework of movement. Throughout the Psalms, from one Psalm to the next, you see the psalmist dealing with different scenarios in life. Sometimes they're dealing with um, issues of praise where everything seems to be going well. They're praising God for his role in creation. They're praising God for his Uh, activity amongst his people, Israel. They're praising God for his consistency and for his power and for his goodness. As we often see in the Psalms and as we can often attest in our own lives though, we live not just in those moments of praise but at other times we move into uh, times of of lament, uh, moving from the good to the bad where it seems as though God is terribly absent. It seems as though God is deafeningly silent in your life. It seems as though God is not there, and the prayers that we pray in those moments are usually ones with clenched fists and clenched jaws. There are moments, however, when God responds to those protests and pleas of the lament psalms where God breaks through and answers those requests in a very powerful way, where God uh, demonstrates himself to be the person that was praised early on in the praise psalms. He demonstrates himself to be one who answers prayers, who takes people out of sickness and bondage and suffering and oppression, who reveals himself uh, in a way that they can't deny and they have, are there before their people saying, I was in the pit, I called to God and he answered me and they give these moments of thanksgiving. Today, not necessarily in light of Easter, we're gonna look at lament psalms. Um, Most people today I would imagine are praising God for the death and resurrection of his son Jesus and we'll do that as well but in order to get there I kinda wanna spend some time in these lament psalms as we begin to look at the bad, the times of disorientation where we move from these foundational beliefs that we have about God into these moments where it seems as though those things don't hold true in our lives. One scholar talks about the costly loss of lament within the American church. It's something that we don't really wanna talk about. I think partially because when we talk about lament and we talk about God being absent or God not being one who hears us or responds to us, that we are calling into question this idea, this notion of certainty. This notion that we want so desperately to be true and that we can affirm all these things in our lives that we don't have doubt, that we don't have um, moments of discontent, that we're okay with everything that comes our way. And this scholar, Walter Brueggemann, says that that is, is costly when we remove that from the corporate life of the church because that is where a lot of us live and have lived for some time, perhaps, where it seems as though God is not involved in your life. It seems as though your prayers are not Um, ones of thanksgiving or praise, but they're ones of of protest and plea for God to do something, for God to act, for God to be present, for God to heal, for God to restore, for God to reconcile, for God to show up, for God to give you some little shred of evidence that he actually exists and actually cares and is actually invested in you as a person. When we remove that from this, I think we're stripping um, ourselves and our worship of something that's just so apparent in life. And whether we've been there in the past or are there now, it is certainly those times will come when we begin to struggle and wrestle with with who God is. I wanna look at this idea of lament through one psalm and we're pretty much just gonna charge on through. I'm gonna pick out some things that I think are mildly interesting and maybe you'll think they're mildly interesting too. 
but stay with me because this does have Jesus's fingerprints on it at some point, okay? So we're gonna begin with Psalm 22. It reads this, this is the Psalm title. It says, for the director of music, and just a side note, most scholars really have no idea what to do with these titles. English translations will translate them differently. Most people at best will say it has something to do with how the song was played. Some folks have said, um, some notations here might be like capo second fret. It's like instructions to the music leader, the worship leader, to say what this song is like. You can see here it says, for the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning. Let's go ahead and hum the doe of the morning real quick. That means nothing to us. Um, for those of you that don't know, I don't know what the doe of the morning is or the tune of it. If you do, kudos, you could write a paper and maybe get a job, but um, nobody really knows what that is, but it's almost like some of these hymns that we have, you might say it's the tune of this psalm and you just sing it. One example, I think the battle hymn of the Republic is also hymn. Don't know which one, I'm just pulling this right off the top of my head as, as I'm speaking, um, but there's certain tunes that get played over and over and you insert different words. One Christian band by the name of Apologetics popularized this by taking secular songs and then making them awful by putting Jesus lyrics on top of them, okay? All right, this says it's a Psalm of David. A lot of times just, I didn't think I was gonna get into all this, but maybe somebody's interested. It doesn't necessarily mean that David wrote this Psalm. I'm not saying that David didn't write any because that's probably not true, but this could also be something like a song concerning David, a song about David, a song that is for David. Okay, so it doesn't necessarily mean that it was penned by David, but still this guy, whoever he was that's putting these instructions at the top is just giving us some pointers on how to read what's going to happen. Okay, verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. A couple things, I've put them in what I believe to be red, bold letters. Okay, all right, thank you. I'm colorblind, for those of you that don't know. Reds and browns, who knows? Um, my God, my God, in this psalm, the psalmist is, is identifying himself as one that has relationship with God, not just as the big guy up there that could zap me at some moment, but there's almost like this personal, friendship might be an overstatement of, of the relationship, but it's, it's an intimate relationship that this person has, and it's really heightened the language because he's saying, my God, my God, the person that is invested in my life, why have you forsaken me, or why have you abandoned me? Why are you not here? Why are you absent from my life? Why do you want nothing to do with me? Particularly, why are you so far from saving me? I've been praying to you quite a bit here about what's going on. Why aren't you showing up? Subtext, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? I think if we were honest with ourselves, a lot of us have prayed those prayers, perhaps more so over the last few months, where it's, why don't you do what we know you can do, and why don't you do it now? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. You are silent. Christians, we talk about this a lot, where we say things like, when you pray, God will give you one of three answers, either yes, no, or maybe. It works out, and I think, Theologically, that's true, but those, those maybes or those moments of silence where you don't know what's happening or you don't see anything working can be devastating. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you making good on this relationship that you have with me? It sets up a couple different um, notes of contrast here in verse, in verse three. You seem as though you're gone. Maybe it's not even fair to say you seem as though. The psalmist is saying, no, in fact, you are gone. You're not here. You have abandoned. It's not like, I wish that I could perceive it more. It's like, no, you've checked out. You're gone. But you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put our trust. They trusted and you delivered them. In other words, you did something. In the past, whether it's the Exodus or these other moments in Israel's history where God shows up climactically to do something, to bring about deliverance, the psalmist is looking back saying, I know what you're capable of. I know what you've done in the past. Do it now. You're enthroned. You're the Holy One. Everyone praises you. Do something talking about the ancestors, it says they trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and they were saved. A lot of times too, we think about this idea of trust as you don't talk back. You don't have thoughts that demonstrate any tension in that belief. But here we see the ancestors, they were trusting and perhaps they were demonstrating their trust in crying out, asking God to do what God was fully capable of doing. Perhaps then that as we sit in these moments of lament, in these moments of doubt and uncertainty, we are actually demonstrating our trust that God is able to do something in the midst of the silence and in the midst of the abandonment that we might feel. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Here in verse three it says, this is who you are, God. You're the one who's enthroned. You're the one who... Everyone praises you. You are the one who is fully capable of doing this stuff because you've done it in the past. But I, I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. S-T-H. He trusts in Yahweh, they say. Let him rescue him. Let him, that is Yahweh, deliver him since Yahweh delights in or likes him. There's this theme throughout the Psalms that if you pray and God delights in you, he will answer those prayers. Think about that for a second. If you're praying and God does not listen to you or God does not answer The implication is God does not delight in you or God does not like you. We oftentimes don't think about that in the church, but we see here this played out in the Psalms. In Psalm 18, this guy is giving praise to God for delivering him from a set of circumstances and it says, God has repaid my righteousness by delivering me. God has delivered me because, because he delights in me, because he likes me, and he likes me because I'm, I'm a good person, because I'm, I'm righteous, I'm fully I'm one who's obedient to the law and I'm following, following God. Don't think that our good deeds or our goodness is something that can merit God's attention. Um, but here in the Psalms, it seems as though the law-keeping, law-abiding Israelite is causing God to work on his behalf. So these people are taunting this guy saying, you trust in Yahweh, let him deliver you since he likes you so much. Let him show up. Let him answer these prayers. But see, this guy's saying that, that in the past, he has not done that. I'm a worm, I'm not a man. Everybody's mocking me. They're hurling insults at me. They're shaking their heads at me and they're, they're taunting me. 
Verse nine, for you, Yahweh, pulled me out of the womb. You made me trust on my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Here the play is, in the past, you delivered Israel from things like the Exodus. You delivered them from Egypt and from oppression, but also you had your hand on me when I was a baby in the womb. More so than that, you pulled me out. One scholar talks about um, Yahweh here acting like a midwife by pulling the child out, then immediately setting it at its mother's breast with the instinctive trusting expectancy of finding milk there. God, in this metaphorical language, is acting as one who delivers the psalmist, the suppliant from, uh, from the womb, has been with him this whole entire time, and, and he's almost as saying, you've been there before, be there again. This is where uh, the, the psalmist actually begins to ask for things. He says, do not be far away from me. And begin, in the beginning, it says, you have abandoned me. You are gone. You have forsaken me. But now the request is, don't be far away because trouble is near because there is no one to help me. It's as if we dip into this guy's set of circumstances where it's complete disaster. It's complete and utter chaos and he's begging God to show up and to be present in his life. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths wide against me like a tearing, roaring lion. I've got all these people around waiting to pounce, waiting to put me to an end. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. This person is just completely piling on here that their situation is bleak to say the least. Completely out of sorts completely afraid for what might happen. Continuing on, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Uh, maybe a better translation of that would be like a lion at my hands and my feet. Uh, when you hear like piercing my hands and my feet, immediately we think of Jesus, crucifixion, right? And that was so there and I wanted it to be there, but it just didn't seem like that was really what was going on in the text. Like a lion at my hands and my feet. Here it's saying like all these enemies are around. The dogs represent scavengers. The dogs represent things that just want to pounce and to not just to put this person to an end, but to take the meat off the bones almost. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Yahweh, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I your name to my people in the assembly I will praise you if Yahweh you answer this prayer I will stand up before anybody and everybody and shout from the mountaintops what you have done I will go in front of the great assembly and say I was surrounded by dogs and lions and these people that just wanted to completely obliterate me but Yahweh has saved me if you will do this it's like you're hanging on to that one last rung on the ladder and you say I'll do anything you want if you just save me, I'll do anything. This is kind of where he's at, where I will declare your name to my people if. I will declare your name to my people if. There's a turn here. 
So in lament psalms, we've seen the psalmist in the, in the pit, the metaphorical pit where nothing is going right, where nothing is making sense. The praise psalms where God is good and God is loving, God is powerful, that's not true of this person's life. No, he's in the pit where all of that is theology and philosophy and it doesn't make sense in how they're living life currently. The psalmist then moves on to say, don't be far from me, save me, entering into that moment of petition and plea. But here, what's interesting about the lament psalms, after they've stated the case saying, this is how bad my life is, God, you're not showing up, you're not there, you're not doing anything, you've got to do these things, and they list them out, there's usually a turn in the poem that goes from protest and plea to trust, to affirmation, to I know you're gonna do it. The things that I'm asking you to do, I know you're gonna make good on them. This idea here where I'm gonna stand in front of the people, yeah, I'm already gonna pick out my Sunday best and I'm gonna go because I know what's gonna happen. You're gonna show up and you're gonna answer these prayers. So here the difference in, in the psalmist's life is they have these protests that are real. It's like gut-wrenching, clenched fists, tight jaws, teary-eyed, do something, show up now, but it's almost like the underlying trust in their life is, I know you will. And we can see that playing out here uh, in, in this psalm where he's beginning to ask people to show up. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not been absent. He has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you forever because he's going to show up. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Again, he'll show up and he'll make these claims in front of everyone that God showed up for him. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows, the vows where I said, if you do this, then I'll stand and tell this to anybody. At the drop of a hat, I'll tell this to anybody. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. He has acted. He has shown up and he has done things. The things that we believe that he could do, put an exclamation point on it. That's what we're going to tell people. You can stop right here in Psalm 22 and begin to apply this text to our lives, and I don't want to run roughshod over the context here, but first, this prayer provides us with a model for times when life doesn't add up. You might even say, when God has abandoned you. Those moments, and this, I might step on some theological toes here, those moments when it doesn't just seem as though God is gone, but it, he might actually be gone. The moments where you're standing there, the dogs have encircled you, whatever they might be, brokenness, divorce, uh, financial difficulties, doubt, um, health issues, um, lack of trust, all these things, they just surround you waiting to pounce and not just to end you, but to completely demolish every part of you. This psalm provides us with an example and a model of what prayer looks like in those moments. The first half is not tame, it's do something. 
The second half is beautiful because it's, I don't just yell because I'm angry. I'm yelling because I know you can do it and I know you will do it, so just do it. So it provides us with this model. It also provides a model as well of calling God to action, of relentless trust, not just this, this half-hearted sort of commitment, but one where you're banking on God to do work because of what he has done in the past. And finally, this prayer invites us in as participants. One of the great things about the Psalms is, other than the Psalm titles where it says a Psalm of David, it doesn't usually name names. It's I, it's they, it's he, it's whatever. And you can place yourself in that story. You can place yourself in the Psalm where you say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These Psalms are not just the stories of one individual. This is why they've been collected and gathered. They're the songs of everyone and we can participate in those psalms because of our collective experience of brokenness and hurt and pain. That works, but I think that this works better. There's a turn in the psalm where it's not just about us. There's a turn in the psalm where it becomes about Jesus. Uh, The author of the book of Matthew brilliantly lays out the last day of Jesus' life in this model of Psalm 22, where the things that are spoken of, not just the hands being pierced and the feet being pierced, but all these different things, it leads up climactically to Christ on the cross. The Psalm says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. This is Matthew chapter 27. Those who passed by Jesus, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the laws and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Check this out. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, if he likes him. He delights in him. The same verbiage of this psalm is all over the passion narratives where we see Jesus being insulted with people shaking their heads, taunting him. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus, in his final days, is living out this psalm. Yeah, we can sing it. Yeah, we can enter in and talk about the dogs that surround us, but also we have a savior who embodies that for us, who also had dogs and lions around him seeking to destroy. Enemies threaten. In the psalm it says, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. This is Matthew 27. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. Drop down to verse 26. He released Barabbas to them because they had been asking for this guy to be released so that Jesus would be found guilty and crucified. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Jesus embodying Psalm 22 
Jesus embodying the brokenness and the pain that this psalmist was talking about much, much earlier. Something seemingly insignificant here in the psalm, it says they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments in Matthew 27. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And then finally, we see in the very first verse of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross cries aloud, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, knowing full well what was happening, Jesus, knowing scriptures better than most people, embodying brokenness, abandonment, doubt, shame, lack of trust. On the cross, living out this lament where he begins by saying, where are you? I don't think this is something, that, something cute that Jesus did where he's saying, oh, this psalm would kind of fit here. I'm cool though. Why have you forsaken me? That'll go good in the book. I think that he's actually in this theme of lament in his own life, whatever that looks like for him. Yes, he's the son of God. He's also human, bringing these two things together in a beautiful picture where Jesus is saying, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why aren't you here now? Why aren't you delivering me now? What's happening now? Continuing on in Matthew 27, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. Check this out. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. And then apparently they just hung out there. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection three days later. So as Jesus is dying, earth shakes, people come back to life, hang out there, and then finally after Jesus' resurrection, they go into the holy city and they appear to many people. Crazy, the walking dead, Jerusalem's edition, you know. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Brokenness, shame, hurt, pain, suffering. He models lament, he models this idea of in the midst of those times, we cry out to God in a way that's, that's meaningful, in a way that's powerful, in a way that's clenched fists and clenched jaws. Jesus models that for us. He also models trust. I'd have to think that as Jesus is on the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I was trying to argue that yes, he's a good reader of the Bible and as a good reader of the Bible, he knows how that psalm ends. It does not end in lack of trust and doubt it ends in affirmation. It ends in, I will stand before people and I will tell them what you have done and I will see this through and I will proclaim that you have done it. Jesus modeling not just brokenness and suffering but perhaps in that last cry, a cry of trust, a cry of affirmation, a cry of, I know that you're going to do something for me. 
Finally, Jesus offers hope. We can't talk about Easter and just think about lament. Hopefully this idea of Jesus lamenting on the cross and hopefully this idea of Jesus moving towards trust at some point gives us hope for our future. Hope for those moments when we stand in the midst of brokenness and suffering and neglect and pain. Offering us maybe even that turn that we can't allow ourselves to to go from you're not there, I feel abandoned to I know you're gonna show up. Jesus in his death and his glorious resurrection. Jesus as king who is not in the tomb but one who is enthroned allows us to see hope. Allows us to experience peace. Allows us to feel God's delight and love that he likes us. Allows us to pray prayers where we can shake our fists and clench our teeth. But we can also end in affirmation saying, I know that you will do whatever it is that you're going to do. I hope tonight that Easter is not just that time where we eat ham. I also hope that Easter is not just that one day of the year when we actually think about these things. I hope that this is emblematic of our lives. As I was thinking about what Easter Sunday is going to look like, I just kind of felt like it looks like every Sunday, it looks like every day that we celebrate Jesus who is alive, who is invested, who cares, who loves, who is fighting for us, who is with us, who when we cry out, why have you abandoned me, he says, I'm right here. I hope that in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through, God breaks through, and those claims that the Bible has all over it actually become true in our lives where God begins to answer these prayers. And I also hope that when that takes place, we can scream it from the mountaintops that he is good and that he is loving and that he is merciful and that we've experienced all of that through the death and resurrection of his son.